Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast. My name is Alan Stair. And I'm Donna Stair. This is the fourth and final season of our week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. Join us for this final season as we're getting into the music, the trivia, and the fun of WKRP. So, fellow babies, stay tuned and stay cool. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to another edition of the WKRP cast. I have a suspicion dinner is not going to go well. What is our episode, Donna? Today we're talking about Jennifer and the Will. The air date was Wednesday, December 2nd, 1981. Written by Blake Hunter, story editor Lisa Levin, executive story consultants Steve Marshall and Dan Gunselman. Directed by Dolores Ferraro. When an elderly gentleman friend of Jennifer's dies, the man's family accuses Jennifer of trying to steal his fortune. There is a trivia item in the IMDb profile for this episode that caught our attention. The problem with IMDb trivia is sourcing. They don't always tell you where those interesting little tidbits come from, and we've found a few of them to be wrong. This one said our current episode, Jennifer and the Will, was actually a sequel to another episode that was never produced. This was an interesting bit of information, but we wanted more detail. We tracked the story back to Jamie Weinman's WKRP blog post about the episode. According to an interview with Steve Marshall, a related episode was planned. Hugh Wilson came up with the idea. He gave Marshall the task of writing an episode called Jennifer's Wedding. In it, Jennifer would marry the colonel, who we meet briefly at the top of this episode. According to Marshall, the script was written but never produced. The two stories weren't necessarily a two-parter or an hour special. It was just another regular episode, which would have aired earlier in the season. A few weeks later would be this callback episode about the death of the colonel. Spoiler alert. Yeah, I think we pretty much know that. (laughs) If not, you're going to know it in the next two minutes. After the fun of Art and Carmen's wedding, we were kind of bummed there isn't a Jennifer's Wedding episode. According to Marshall, it was the CBS programming executives who nixed the idea. They didn't want Lonnie Anderson to be married, not even for a few weeks. The idea of Jennifer marrying was off the table, but this idea about her dealing with the death of one of her elderly boyfriends remained. The connection to the wedding idea is why Jennifer's position in this episode oftentimes seems to be more like that of a widow rather than a grieving girlfriend. I think I would have liked seeing Jennifer married. It would have been fun. Well, seeing Jennifer plan the wedding would have been a good time. Yes, and getting but everybody seeing involved. the wedding, can you imagine? Considering the colonel was loaded. Did you catch our director? Dolores Ferraro is back. This is her second of three WKRP episodes. We first met Dolores when she helmed the Herb Has a Drinking Problem episode, Out to Lunch. 
Dolores was a key presence for women in the Directors Guild of America in the late 70s and early 80s. She, along with five other female DGA members, were called the Original Six. This group carried out groundbreaking research, showing the lack of female directors on both episodic TV and major motion picture projects. At the time, female directors were relegated to news, education, or industrial video production, and even then in very small numbers. The original six proved TV and feature film directing spots were filled by men 99.5% of the time between 1950 and 1980. The work of the original six, which included a class action lawsuit, paved the way for female feature film directors starting in the 1980s. Let's get into our episode. We began in a very posh restaurant. We start out on a close-up of a man playing the violin. The shot widens out as he strolls past a table where Jennifer and an elderly gentleman are seated. He's playing Fascination by F.D. Marchetti and Maurice Ferrati. The elderly gentleman jerks his head in the violinist's direction. What's that about? <laughs> Jennifer gives an apologetic smile to the head waiter as she pats the older gentleman's leg. The song being played in this scene is an old, old song. Fascination was a popular waltz. Music by Fermo Dante Marchetti and lyrics by Maurice de Ferrardi. The song was first published in Hamburg and Paris in 1904 in a version for piano solo, no lyrics. Ferrari's words were added a year later. The version with lyrics was first performed by the French music hall singer Paulette Darty in 1905 and published the same year. It was fascination, I know, seeing you alone with the moon. Then I touch your hand and next moment I kiss you fascination to love. The head waiter comes over to Jennifer's table and speaks to her in French. Et l'emploi de poivre vert. Jennifer smiles and claps her hands. Ah, oh, green peppercorn. Exactement. Oh. Jennifer turns to her old friend. Why, of course, they're green. He's not impressed. The old man makes a grunt. He could care less. The head waiter continues talking to Jennifer in French. Jennifer is smiling and reacting to what he's saying. I promise to remember. The waiter asks Jennifer something in French. Un peu plus de café pour vous et le colonel. Oh, I don't think so. Look, it's 9.30 past the colonel's bedtime. Ah, so here's where we learn this is the colonel. Our violinist really is a violinist. The violinist is being played by Shoney Alex Braun. Shoney was born in July of 1924 in Duca, Romania. He has five acting credits. In three of them, he is listed as violinist. In a fourth, he is fiddler. Downscale violinist. In the fifth, a part in the 1988 movie named 68, he played the character Tibor Cardos. We couldn't find it and we haven't seen the movie, but we're betting Tibor plays the violin. (laughs) 
Shoney is also listed as composer for 68 and two other films. I really think Shoney was more of a composer musician who they happened to put on camera every now and then. <laughs> Colonel H. Buchanan is being played by Pat O'Brien. Pat was born in Milwaukee in 1899. Woo. Although he was born and raised in the U.S., he's often identified as a member of Hollywood's Irish Mafia. Others in the IM included Alan Jenkins, Frank McHugh, and James Cagney. O'Brien's first movie role was in 1930. He's notched more than 150 performance credits on his IMDb profile in both movies and TV shows. O'Brien, who was both Irish and a devout Catholic, often played priests, monsignors, and bishops. His Irish look and his ability to put on an authentic Irish brogue also landed him numerous roles as policemen. One of his <laughs> most famous parts was playing Newt Rockney to Ronald Reagan's George Gipp in 1940's Newt Rockney, All-American. George's telegram just arrived from Water Camp. He'd been named fullback on his All-American team. You wouldn't kid me, Rock. No, it's on the level. You're gonna be all right, kid. I haven't got a complaint in the world, Rock. I'm not afraid. What's tough about this? Rock, someday when the team's up against it, the brakes are beating the boys. Ask him to go in there with all they've got. Win just one for the Kipper. This appearance as the Colonel was one of O'Brien's final performances. His last movie role was in 1981's Ragtime. He would make one more TV guest appearance on a 1982 Happy Days episode. O'Brien passed away in 1983. O'Brien's performance here is more than just a random guest-starring role. He was also personal friends with Lonnie Anderson. O'Brien performed with Lonnie in a summer stock play while she was still living in Minnesota. He encouraged her to go to Hollywood. He said she struck him as more than just another pretty face. He thought she had what it took to make it in Hollywood. And it turns out, he had a good eye. The part of Andre, the head waiter, is being played by Roger Till. Roger does a great French accent because Roger is French. He was born in Paris in 1909. Roger's earliest credited appearances are French titles through 1954. In 1956, Roger is credited as appearing in a Wally Cox series called The Adventures of Hiram Holiday. Because of this change to English project titles, we're guessing Roger made his way to Hollywood in the mid-1950s. Roger has 84 total acting credits on his IMDb profile. He made the rounds of both hours and half hours in the 1970s and 80s. Roger has appeared in guest shots on series as varied as... Silver Spoons, Blue Thunder, Heart to Heart, and Wings. Because of his accent and his ability to speak French, Roger has appeared as either a maitre d' or head waiter in more than 20 of his credited parts. <laughs> 
Roger passed away in June of 2002 at the age of 93. I liked your comment about this when you said this is how we stereotype Frenchmen. They become head waiters. <laughs> head waiters or maitre d's. Maitre d's. Jennifer turns to the colonel. He appears to be sleeping. Jennifer tells the waiter, oh, he's already napping. He often takes a little snooze between dessert and coffee. Helps build up his strength for the long walk to the car. <laughs> Jennifer asks the waiter for the check. The mere presence of an outrageously overinflated bill always arouses him. (laughs) Violinist comes back up to the table, still playing Fascination. He comes to the end of his piece. Jennifer thanks him, saying it was very soothing. Andre appears at the table with their check. Say my whopper. And you know another way to get a good laugh? Have the Frenchman say whopper. As he hands the check over. He kisses Jennifer's hand and leaves. Jennifer sits for a moment, thinking the colonel will wake up. She pushes the little folder containing the check for this evening's dinner toward the colonel. (laughs) She waits a bit more. Seeing no response from the colonel, she slides the folder with the check inside even closer, practically right under his nose. The colonel doesn't move. Jennifer puts her hand on the colonel's hands, and then she realizes he's not breathing. She puts her other hand up to her chest. Oh, dear. Pat O'Brien does a nice job of dying on screen. He goes to breathing very slowly and shallowly after slumping over. They stay on him for quite a while. You don't really see him breathing. It's a pretty good effect. If you want to see the dead man breathing, run your DVD in fast mode. Sped up. You can easily see his chest going up and down. So as Jennifer figures out what to do with that whopper of a check, we head into our theme. WKRP in Cincinnati. As we open in the lobby, we must stop and take note of the redecoration project. This is our first real look at the very big changes made to the back walls and Jennifer's desk. It's marble textured paneling everywhere. (laughs) Remember that shiny marble textured paneling that was hot in the early 80s? Well, Jennifer is trendy. This has a brownish tannish hue. The walls are cladded with it everywhere. There's recessed lighting in the overhead marble panels. The coffee pot now sits on a marble panel in a marble inset. Jennifer's desk is a large kidney bean shape, also covered in marble texture panels. I think it looks very rich. Oh, yeah. She's going for that very rich look. I also kind of thought her desk looked a little like a boomerang. (laughs) It does. (laughs) There are some low, antique-looking chairs in the seating area. The light controls no longer switches. They look like dimmer controls. Very modern. The main door and the door leading back to the bullpen both seem to be a very modern-looking smoked glass. The door frames now have a sleek, brushed aluminum look. On the main door coming in, we can see a small and tasteful WKRP, looking very much like the show logo. Even with all of the changes to the walls and the doors, we still have the old green walls peeking around the edges of the new stuff. Also... The horrible orange carpet still remains. That nasty carpet. That Herb said he was going to take, but he hasn't (laughs) taken it yet. Jennifer enters the lobby where Andy is hanging up the phone. Jennifer says hello to Andy and then puts her purse and coat on a chair. Andy tells Jennifer he's sorry to hear about the colonel. He says she didn't have to come in today. 
Jennifer tells Andy it's no problem and thanks him. The door to Mr. Carlson's office opens. Mr. Carlson steps over to Andy and Jennifer. I'm, I'm sorry, Jennifer. I'm, I'm, I'm truly sorry. You, you shouldn't have come in today. Now, why don't you go home? Yeah, sure. Jennifer tells them she needs to keep busy. She thanks them, saying she's just fine. Art tells Jennifer he doesn't know what to say. Neither do I. Well, do what I do. Put your fist through the wall. <laughs> Jennifer gives Andy kind of a shocked look. Wrong thing. I said the wrong thing. <laughs> Andy looks over at Art. I said the wrong thing. <laughs> Jennifer heads to her chair, pulls it out, sits down. Colonel always called me a good little soldier, and that is exactly what I'm going to be. Andy tells Jennifer she's right. Look on the positive side. The colonel was a nice man. He was a wonderful man who lived 80 very full years. But his last years were his happiest. Art standing next to Jennifer. Why was that? Uh, Jennifer slowly turns and gives Art an are-you-kidding kind of look. Jennifer tells Andy and Mr. Carlson the colonel did a wonderful thing for her. He left you a million dollars. Andy is looking closely at Jennifer <laughs> as he says this. She shoots him a disapproving look. Wrong thing. I said the wrong thing. Jennifer gets a very thoughtful expression on her face. One night, right in the middle of Parcheesi. The colonel's eyes opened and he said, Jennifer, I want you to be the executrix of my estate, just like that. And he said that a bit more enthusiastically than he meant to or should have. Sorry. <laughs> Jennifer explains the colonel doesn't trust any of his family. I'm going to see that his wishes are carried out to the letter. Andy is just not a comforting presence, is he? He just keeps sticking his foot in his mouth at every opportunity. Well, and like they say later on in the show, death makes people very uncomfortable. Yeah, but with Andy, it comes out in weird ways. <laughs> Jennifer mentioned she and the colonel enjoyed a rousing game of Parcheesi. Parcheesi is the brand name for a Parker Brothers adaptation of the national game of India. It's a cross and circle game called Pachisi in India. It's spelled P-A-C-H-I-S-I. Parcheesi first appeared as a board game in Britain in 1860. Then, in about 1867, it appeared in America. The origins of Parcheesi's arrival to the U.S. are a bit murky. The game was first trademarked in 1874, making it one of the oldest trademarked games in America. It is also America's longest-selling game. In Parcheesi's Wikipedia entry, the In Popular Culture section lists a mention of the game on Seinfeld, but not this mention on WKRP in Cincinnati. Fellow babies, I think somebody needs to get on that. I've never played Parcheesi. I've never even seen it played. Oh, we Have used you? to play it when I was a kid. We had the family had some Parcheesi. I remember it being simple. It's one of those games you can learn very quickly, but then to master it takes forever because there's a lot of challenge to the strategy of it. Hmm. Yeah, I, I remember playing it as a kid. The executor of a will is a male given the task of executing the legal wishes set forth in a will after the testator is deceased. Executrix is a word for a female doing the same task. There is no difference in duties between an executor and an executrix. Several legal dictionaries mentioned the term executrix has fallen out of use in modern times. These days, executor is used whether it's a male or female in the role, but then we couldn't do the jokes. Art asked Jennifer what she would guess is involved here. Maybe... 
couple of hundred thousand. Jennifer gasps. She puts her hand to her throat. Chuckling, she responds. <laughs> Millions, for sure. Perhaps even billions. There's so much to count. Art looks a little shocked. Andy mentions, sounds like a tough job. I don't mind. The colonel knew I was getting restless. I, I'd mastered seven languages, just about finished the lobby here. He knew I needed another project. <laughs> Carlson's looking very serious with this conversation. He's a darn thoughtful man. <laughs> darn thoughtful. We cut into the studio. And since we're heading to the studio, we have to check out the walls. That's right. It's time for a poster watch. Yay! We weren't in the studio last time, so we were hoping for some new posters. There are some changes, but not a lot that's new. There's a larger version of the Oingo Boingo Only a Lad album cover on the studio door. It's in the spot where we last saw Foreigner's four promo poster. We first saw this Oingo Boingo graphic in a smaller version back in Andy's office. To the lower right of Bailey is the riot poster we've also seen. The tubes have moved over under the album shelves, and Dynasty is now under the studio window. Behind Bailey over the Cincinnati map is a large format promo poster for the Rolling Stones album Tattoo You. This is the Stones album that was tearing up the charts in the early 1980s. Fun trivia about this one. That face you're seeing on the cover with the tattoos is Mick Jagger. Cover designer Peter Coriston created the graphic from a photo of Jagger. It won a Grammy for packaging design. Now, something you might not know, unless you own the album, Coriston also did the same thing to a picture of Keith. It's the graphic on the back of the album cover. Keith Richards has the same extensive face tattoos. He's also looking to the side, and his head is over a field of emerald. A three-foot-by-three-foot three vintage poster of the Keith artwork is currently being offered by a London gallery. If you'd like it for the living room, the asking price is $1,212. The only really new thing we've got this week is on the studio door. It's a promo for Bob Seger's 1981 live album called Nine Tonight. Seeger had done well with a 1976 live album called Live Bullet. When a band is touring a lot, there sometimes isn't time to write new material. This might explain two live albums in five years. <laughs> At least it was new stuff. Only one song, Let It Rock, appeared on both live albums. Everything on Nine Tonight, except for three tracks, came from his three previous studio albums. It had just been released in September of 1981. Nine Tonight will peak on the U.S. Billboard album chart at number three. We've got one more, but it's not really in the studio. If you look through the window to the production booth, you can see Duran Duran in red letters over a blue background. This is a promo poster for their 1981 self-titled debut album. It would go to number 10 on the U.S. album charts, but no hits. The single Girls on Film got some good rotation on MTV. Girls on Film. 
but nothing made the U.S. Hot 100. They would not become the Fab Five and conquer the world until next year's release, Rio. We did find a close-up of this poster. There's some text that you can't see on the screen that's kind of funny. Above the top word Duran, very small, is the phrase dance into the future with... Then the big words, Duran Duran, and under the lower Duran is the phrase, the new romantic rebels, with an exclamation point. We transition to the studio where we hear Magic Man by Herb Alpert playing over the air. Bailey is sitting on the stool and Venus is at the mic. Johnny is over by the cart rack. So I'm thinking about Jennifer, you know, what she's going through. Johnny is eating an apple as he speaks. I think she ought to get out and do some. That sounds right. Problem is, what do you do with Jennifer? We get a close-up on <laughs> Venus's face here. His expression says he might have an answer to Johnny's last comment. You know what I mean. Johnny explains they live in two different worlds. It's like I like to go to police auctions, stuff like that. <laughs> Bailey suggests Johnny take Jennifer where he took her. You know that store that has every last issue of Captain Marvel comics? Venus sarcastically says, yeah, that would cheer her up. Johnny opens the door to leave. He tells Venus and Bailey he'll think of something. As Johnny leaves, Les enters. I feel like something's missing in our life that we've never been to a police auction. The song Venus is playing is Magic Man by Herb Alpert. It's the title cut and first single release from Alpert's 1981 album. The single will peak at number 79 on the U.S. Hot 100. The album will go to number 61 on the album chart. Hi, West. Less. <laughs> Time for half-hour update. Card inserted. Venus inserts a cart into the player on the control board. I like this. You remember Les's problem handling carts? Mm -hmm. Well, he's found a solution. <laughs> he has Venus do it for him. Inserted. Noise about to end. Record's almost over. Then let's go to work. Les rolls up his sleeves. Venus gets up from the DJ's chair and Les sits. Venus starts the intro for Les's new update. Hold on a minute. This is a new one. <laughs> it's a little hard to hear, and it did take a few run-throughs to get it. But we're pretty sure they're singing Les Nessman, Cincinnati's Window to the World. Cincinnati's Window to the World. So no more William Woodson at least on the half hour. <laughs> Using the mallet from the gong as a baton, Venus begins marching around the studio behind Les. Bailey, laughing, motions for him to stop. And now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye NewsHawk Award winner, Les Nessman. This is the Les Nessman Bandage Report. Now here's Donna Stair with her report about Les Nessman. Left hand, middle, and ring fingers. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb award-winning journalist, Les Nessman. 
Now, let's take a look at Venus's vibin' threads. Venus is wearing maroon-colored pants with a black and maroon shirt. The shirt has a black collar. The maroon color is over his shoulders and comes down to a V under the third button. The bottom of the shirt is black. He's wearing a black belt. I could do this kind of thing all the time. Just leave the camera on them in the studio and let's just watch them work. <laughs> just let people come in and out and let Venus play stuff. And I could just do that for half an hour. So Les begins his report. Time for the half hour news update with Les Nessman. Top of the day, Death Watch. Venus, it's the gong. <laughs> like this was planned, Les turns and gives Venus a dirty look, then continues. Ask not for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for Colonel H. Buchanan, one of the wealthiest men in Ohio. He died last evening at a local restaurant. The colonel was a decorated veteran of both world wars, beloved by his men of the fighting 42nd Division, who called him Old Ironhead. <laughs> Although Les kind of liked the gong thing, he jerks his head at Venus, wanting him to hit the gong again. Venus finally gets it and gives the gong another bang. <laughs> now Les is forgetting the young fellow from the Nothing to Fear episode. All of society will be crushed under the massive weight of man's basic disrespect for his fellow man. Ergo the testament of John Donne. Said not to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. The John Donne quote doesn't start, ask not. The correct quote is, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. Les goes on. In peace, Colonel Buchanan returned to Cincinnati, where he amassed his great fortune through real estate, high finance, and women's nylons. Venus hits the gong after nylons. <laughs> And earns another dirty look from Les. <laughs> Venus turns to look out the studio window, avoiding Les's eyes. Bailey is sitting on the stool in the back of the studio, her hands covering her face as she laughs. Real estate and high finance are fine, but we're betting the colonel really cleaned up with the nylon stockings. Nylon was introduced by DuPont Chemical Company in 1939. It was a wonder fiber. One of its most popular uses was as nylon stockings for ladies. Prior to the invention of nylon, ladies wore silk stockings. They didn't fit well, they ripped easily, and required a garter to stay up. Nylon was more elastic and stronger than silk. Once ladies' nylons were introduced on May 16th of 1940, there was no going back to silk. The U.S. military was also using silk, a lot of silk. And that was a problem during World War II because the U.S. got the bulk of their silk, an estimated 90% from Japan. That, of course, stopped during the war. DuPont showed the War Production Board how nylon could do a better job than silk for things like Glider tow ropes, mosquito netting, hammocks, flak jackets, even parachutes could be made better and more effectively with nylon. DuPont's stock of nylon went to the war effort in February of 1942. I actually found one article that said it was commandeered by the Army. From then on, all nylon production would be geared towards the war. Well, ladies panicked. They couldn't even go back to silk because silk was also unavailable. 
During the war, many women began shaving, then staining their legs to get the desired <laughs> stocking effect. Coffee, cocoa powder, and gravy browning were all used. So they smelled good. Going out on dates, their dates probably like, why, do, why am I hungry? <laughs> why does the office smell like cocoa? <laughs> For a finishing touch, ladies would paint the stocking seam up the back of their legs using an eyebrow pencil. Before the war was over, leg cosmetics hit the market. Women began shaving their legs and applying liquid stockings before going out. <laughs> leg shaving would continue even after nylon was available again. This is where ladies shaving their legs began. So right here. Before the 1940s, they, they were all hairy. They huh? were hairy legs and they were wearing stockings you know, I never to cover thought it of that up. Before how that got started. This is where it started, right here. And they said that the uh, cosmetic companies kind of you know, kept it going. They decided that, hey, here's another avenue to sell stuff to people to make them freak out about how bad they look and they've got to correct it. And you know, I remember my mom talking about she and her sister would draw the line up the backs of their legs before they'd go out at And night. you said that was even after the war. It was the after war. the war because Nylons they were very were poor. They still couldn't afford them, yes. So it was a way to get around paying because some of the pairs of nylons right after the war were exorbitant prices. Even now we would think, you know, going 10 bucks a pair back then, that's like a $100 bill right, for a pair right. of nylons. In August of 1945, eight days after Japan surrendered, woo-ha, DuPont announced nylon production would once again be directed to stockings. Phew. Yeah. Ladies from coast to coast lost their minds. The nylon riots were on. And I had never heard of this. <laughs> and you said, why don't they put this in the history books? Yes. Pe people would be reading the history. something interesting for the kids. DuPont could not gear up fast enough to meet demand. The motto, Nylons by Christmas, was being sung around the country in the fall of 1945, but it was not to be. In November, 40,000 women lined up in Pittsburgh at a department store trying to buy a mere 13. 15,000 pairs of nylons. There were fist fights. Black Friday was nothing compared to this. <laughs> the same scene played out around the country. 30,000 women lined up in New York. The nylon riots continued throughout the winter around the country. Finally, by March of 1946, DuPont was able to ramp production up to 30 million pairs a month and demand ease. Phew! <laughs> Okay, back to the studio. Les continues his report about Colonel Buchanan. Later, he turned his attention to a political career, highlighted by a 1968 shoving match with then-Vice President Spiro Agnew. Bailey leans forward and whispers the correct pronunciation to Les. Spiro! Les turns and looks at her. There's so much stuff in this report. I love it. Les needs a research staff. Not only did he get the pronunciation wrong, he also got the timeline wrong. Spiro Agnew was vice president under Richard Nixon, starting with his election in 1968. Now, if you're elected in November of 1968, you don't become VP until January of 69. Sorry, Les. Agnew was also VP for Nixon's second term in 1972. So why didn't Spiro take over after Nixon resigned? Well, he had a little scandal of his own to deal with. Spiro had been both a Baltimore County executive and governor of Maryland before becoming VP. Turns out, 
While in Maryland, he was taking kickbacks from contractors. The payments continued into his time as vice president. He was being investigated for criminal conspiracy, bribery, extortion, and tax fraud. Busy little guy. <laughs> After months of investigation by the U.S. State's Attorney for the District of Maryland, Agnew pled no contest to a single charge of tax evasion and he resigned from office in September of 1973. House Republican leader Gerald Ford was named by Nixon to replace Agnew. Okay, now follow this. Ford would serve as VP for a mere nine months because you might remember old Tricky Dick had his own scandal. In August of 74, Nixon would also resign, only this time it was due to Watergate. Now, Agnew was never implicated in Watergate. He was way too busy with the other stuff. <laughs> Agnew and Nixon's resignations meant Ford moved from House of Representatives to vice president to president in less than a year and without going through an election for anything other than his house seat. Looking perturbed at being interrupted, Les ignores Bailey's little pronunciation correction <laughs> and presses on. At the time of his untimely death, the 80-year-old colonel was in the company of a young blonde woman. Venus and Bailey shoot a look at each other. They both walk up behind Les and lean over his shoulder to see what he's reading. The Buchanan family claims not to know her identity, but say the colonel had recently developed an interest in gold diggers and blonde floozies. Bailey grabs the tear sheet from Les. Taking the tear sheet with her, she hurries out the door. Take note here. We're going to talk about this in a minute. Bailey leaves the studio with the tear sheet, but she's not wearing her coat. Les is very flustered, and he isn't sure where to go from here. Venus is motioning him to go on. The, um, the colonel will be buried, I suppose. <laughs> Less without tear sheets is a scary proposition. Vice President Spiro Agnew. We transition to the lobby. Jennifer is sitting at her desk, staring at a newspaper sitting on her desk. Bailey comes running into the lobby from the door that leads to the bullpen. Okay, now notice Bailey is wearing her coat and carrying her purse now. This is listed as a continuity error in the IMDb goofs section for this episode. Well, we don't think it's a goof. Bailey is also going to get Jennifer her coat in a minute and offer to walk Jennifer to her car. It's the end of the day, quitting time. We're thinking it would have made sense for Bailey to have left the studio, gone through the bullpen to pick up her coat and purse, and now she's headed home for the day. She knew she'd pass through the lobby, so she brought the tear sheet with her. I just thought of something as we were talking about this. Jennifer going to her car. What car do you think Jennifer drives? Ooh, I don't know. I don't think she would be down in a little squatty sportster thing. I think it's like a big white sedan. I'm seeing white. Maybe a Rolls or a something big and really... A Bentley. A Bentley, maybe. But then she'd have somebody else driving. I'm sure she's quite used to that with the gentleman she hangs out with. I'm sure there are always drivers, <laughs> drivers around. Bailey says Jennifer's name, but Jennifer doesn't look up. Bailey tries again. Jennifer? Oh, hello, Bailey. Bailey asks Jennifer what she's doing. Jennifer tells Bailey she's thinking. Bailey wads up the yellow tear sheet and puts it in the trash can. 
And she asked Jennifer uh, about what? Well, this morning it was the nature of existence. Around noon I began to embrace the philosophy of Camus. Existentialism is perhaps the answer. (laughs) Bailey gives a, a light chuckle. Jennifer mentioned Camus. Albert Camus was a French philosopher who lived from November of 1913 until January 1960. He was killed in a car wreck at the age of 46. Camus won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1957. At 44, he was the second youngest recipient of the prize. Rudyard Kipling had won it at age 42. Camus was a moralist who rejected Marxist views. He was also strongly critical of the Soviet Union. Camus is considered an existentialist, as Jennifer says, but he didn't think so. Camus rejected the term throughout his lifetime. Bailey sees the evening paper on Jennifer's desk. She asks if she can see it. Jennifer tells her, sure. Read what it says in the article there about the blonde floozy. Jennifer points to a section and Bailey reads. Jennifer, where do they get this stuff? From the family. Jennifer explains she's the executrix of the will, so the family is out to get her. They're also trying to contest the will. The door to Mr. Carlson's office opens. Mr. Carlson has his coat draped over his arm and he's putting on his hat. He yawns like maybe he's been napping. I guess I'll go. Mr. Carlson looks at Jennifer and asks if she's going to be all right. Jennifer tells him sure. Mr. Carlson is looking at Jennifer. Oh, your hair sure is beautiful today, Jennifer. Spun gold. <laughs> I, I, I love it like that. Carlson walks out the door. Bailey looks at Jennifer. Are you going to fight him? I guess I'm going to have to. We see Mr. Carlson step back through the doorway. <laughs> <laughs> your, your hair is nice too, Bailey. <laughs> Bailey thanks Carlson, and he leaves once again. Funny art should comment on Jennifer's hair. Lonnie Anderson is naturally a brunette. When she first came to Hollywood, she said she was always getting heavy roles because of her dark hair. She was jealous of the blonde actresses who seemed to be getting all the leading or comic roles. She decided to go blonde. At first, she tried wigs, with some pretty good results. In 1978, she made the commitment to permanent color. Going blonde was more difficult than she anticipated. Keeping black hair blonde all the way down to the roots, required regular and very caustic chemical treatments. Lonnie Anderson said in her book, My Life in High Heels, the ongoing and intense chemical treatments cause damage. Starting in season three and throughout season four, many of the hairstyles you see Lonnie wearing are wigs. Yeah, if I remember correctly, I think she said her hair began to fall out. To fall out, so there were thin areas. It was very thin, yeah. yeah. Bailey wants to ask Jennifer something, and she tries to rather awkwardly. Well, do you think the colonel, well, uh, left me a lot of money? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Jennifer tells Bailey she asked him not to. She was worried that if he did, He would look like an old coot with the hots for a younger woman. Which is, of course, what he was. (laughs) But in an utterly charming way. Oh, I'm going to miss the coot. Bailey leans down and puts her arm around Jennifer, telling her it will get better with time. 
Well, Jennifer says she knows. Jennifer tells Bailey she's not looking forward to the next couple of days. I have to go to the funeral, and I have to go to the lawyer's office. I just wish the colonel had left me out of this. Bailey gets Jennifer's coat and holds it up for Jennifer to put on. She offers to walk Jennifer to her car. Jennifer stands up and thanks Bailey as she puts on her coat. They walk out the door as Les and Herb enter from the door leading to the bullpen, (laughs) which brings us to... The line of the episode... What is an executrix? I don't know. High heels and a whole lot of leather. Something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love those two together. Oh, man. Johnny and Venus together and then Lurb together. Love them. Okay, so we're having some fun with Herb's recall of words ending in tricks. T-R-I-X. This is Latin. It's used as a feminine suffix. Herb is describing a dominatrix. (laughs) A dominatrix likes to take the sadistic role in BDSM activities. Um, if you'd like to know more, please visit your local library or a porno theater. <laughs> that reminds me of those things NBC used to do. The more you know. Those little public service announcements. We cut into the studio where Johnny is at the mic. He's introducing I Heard It Through the Grapevine by Marvin Gaye. As it begins playing over the air, Johnny announces it's 9.47. We can see Jennifer walk by the window. Johnny goes into a Motown classic. Heard it through the grapevine. It was written by Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong for Motown in 1966. Three recordings of the track were made in 1966 and 67. The first was made by The Miracles in 1966. The second was Gay's version in early 67. Gladys Knight and the Pips had the third recording, but the first release. Their version of Grapevine came out in September of 67. Go to number one on the R&B chart and number two on the Hot 100. Knight's version was Motown's most successful single to date. The Miracles version of Grapevine was never released as a single. It was included on their 1968 album, Special Occasion. Reportedly, their take on the tune was vetoed for release because Barry Gordy didn't like it. He wanted a stronger version of the song. Gay's version was not released as a single until October of 68, and when it was released, it exploded. Gay's version of Heard It Through the Grapevine would go to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for seven weeks, becoming Motown's new biggest hit single. I Heard It Through the Grapevine is number 80 on the Rolling Stone list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. When Johnny sees Jennifer passing by the window, he jumps out of his chair and runs out into the hallway. Jennifer's a little startled and says good morning. Johnny asks how she's feeling. She says she's fine. You're a 
get out and do things, you know? Kind of take your mind off things. You ever been to night court? <laughs> Johnny's life outside of this station just sounds that really cool. That could be cool. a whole show on its own. <laughs> <laughs> just follow Johnny around when he's not on. <laughs> Jennifer looks up at Johnny with wide eyes. She has not been to night court. Oh, boy, I hang out down there a lot, you know. Last week, they caught this guy. They had him in there with 106 television sets. <laughs> Jennifer chuckles, not quite knowing what to say. Johnny is looking at the floor. He's kind of moving his foot in a circle in a real anxious kind of way. So, uh, if you ever uh, free in the evening, if you like stepping out uh, give me a call jennifer tells johnny thank you and begins walking away glancing nervously back at johnny she's just a little worried about him she opens the door to the bullpen before we leave the hallway we have to do a quick hallway poster watch Yay! we can still see the commodores over the door ian hunter has now moved from the bullpen hallway to here on the angled wall the yellow jackets are still on the right hand wall we do have something new. The poster on the wall through the doorway at the end of the hall is a promo for Carly Simon's 1981 release, Torch. This was her 10th studio album and her first devoted to primarily standards. It did contain one Simon original from the heart. The rest were, as the title says, classic Torch songs about lost love and rejection. There may be a reason for the relentlessly melancholy theme. Turns out the album was recorded during the breakup of her marriage to James Taylor. Their divorce was announced shortly after the release. Hurt was the only single it would not crack the Hot 100, peaking at number 106. through a period of mourning when they divorced. I hated that. But James was then free. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> James was a bachelor again. Jennifer walks into the bullpen. Venus is sitting at the DJ's desk. Oh, Venus, he's trying the headband again. <laughs> Please, Gordon, give it up. Yeah, I don't know whose decision that was, but Ooh, it was not a good one. Not a good look. Les sees Jennifer and he hurries over to her. Oh. Jennifer. There's a long beat of silence. Les doesn't know what to say. Then he finally gets out. How are you? She tells Les she's fine. Les pats her on the upper arm, nodding his head. He then walks out the door to the studio hallway. Jennifer looks at Venus. Boy, people really don't know what to say when someone's died. Venus nervously begins running his hands back and forth on the desk. Well, you know, it, it, it's... Uh... Well, you know, at, at least with most people, it's like, well, it's, you know, it. sometimes... Jennifer tries to bail him out by interrupting. The funeral's tomorrow. Good. No, no, not good. 
I mean that it is tomorrow. That's that's the thing, of course. And this is what we were talking about, how everybody is really treating her like a wife, a, a wife a or a widow of someone rather than it's just a friend that's passed away. Jennifer apologizes for making everyone feel so uncomfortable. Venus tells her, no, it's not uncomfortable. It's just sorry and sad, sad for a friend. Venus stands, and when he does... Now, let's take a look at Venus's vibin' threads. New day, new vibes. Venus is wearing a mock turtleneck sweater that is a dark teal green with matching pants and a belt of the same color. The effect is that of a jumpsuit. He's wearing a camouflage headband, using maroon and green for the camo spots. And, as mentioned... This outfit would be far more vibin' without the headband. It is statement about the vibeness of the outfit, though, that it still gets a vibin' threads even with the headband. Yes. Venus looks very uncomfortable. He stands for a bit, kind of unsure what to do. He's got his arms swinging nervously down by his sides. Then he looks over at a stack of albums and sees a way out. I'm going to take these uh, albums to the booth. <laughs> okay. Goodbye. Venus <laughs> leaves the bullpen. Herb enters through the glass doors. He walks up to Jennifer. Uh, hey, Jenny, I didn't get a chance to tell you how sorry I am that that colonel guy bought the farm. <laughs> hey, you had a long life, a lot of dough. Herb looks Jennifer up and down. Got to go out with you. Caught the big bus while he was eating in the best joint in town. Not bad if you ask me. <laughs> Big bus is my honorable mention for line of the episode. Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> well, Jennifer begins to laugh. Sometimes I like you, Herb. You really have a way with words. Hey, I'm in sales. <laughs> oh, and no fashion alert. The coat is a bit wild, and maybe he should rethink the pink shirt. <laughs> but this is by no means an alert-worthy outfit. Maybe he's toned it down out of respect for the colonel. Caught the big bus while he was eating in the best joint in town. Herb is so just thoughtful and sensitive <laughs> yes. to the needs of others. We cut into Art's office where Carlson is sitting at his desk reading a magazine when there is a knock on the door. And the article that he's opened to is something about hunting clams. Art's just into all things ocean-related, I guess. Fishing, fishing and Fishing and clams. <laughs> and The door opens and Andy walks in. He asks Art about Jennifer. Carlson says, Jennifer's much better. She got quite a little write-up in today's paper. Oop, Andy slaps the paper he's holding. The door opens and Jennifer enters. Art stands and Andy quickly puts the paper behind his back. Jennifer is also holding a copy of the paper. She asks Carlson and Andy if they've seen it. Andy pulls his paper out from behind his back. She tells them the colonel's relatives have really gone too far and begins to read. It is not known if the industrialist woman companion is employed. Jennifer looks at Mr. Carlson. Mr. Carlson has a worried look on his face as he walks to the other side of his chair. Andy tells Jennifer he doesn't think she should go to the funeral with this kind of publicity. I'm not even sure if I'll be allowed, but I am going. Jennifer turns to Mr. Carlson and asks him to take her. Mr. Carlson tells her, you bet. He will handle everything. And the Travis, I think you got to call the newspaper and straighten those people out. Andy tells Art he agrees, but... 
Jennifer speaks up. No, no, don't do that. No, then they'll just know who I am, and I'll never get any peace. I just want to be left alone. Oh, I'm, I'm tired. I'm really just tired. Jennifer sits in Art's chair and leans her head on Carlson's belly. She's just worn out. Art puts his arm around Jennifer's shoulders. <laughs> Andy looks at Jennifer. He tells her, just stay here in Mr. Carlson's office. Nothing ever goes on in here. It's a nice place to be. <laughs> <laughs> Andy leaves the office, closing the door behind him. Carlson grimaces at the closed door. We do a quick cut to the lobby, but there's been a time jump. Bailey is at Jennifer's desk. Andy comes in from the bullpen door just as Bailey is finishing up a phone call. Andy asks Bailey if they're back yet. Bailey tells him, no, not yet. Just then, Mr. Carlson strides into the office from the main entrance, looking angry. Andy asks him how everything went. I never saw anything like it. Where's Jennifer? I took her home. Well, what happened? It was like a three-ring circus. The press was there, television cameras, newspaper photographers, people running all over the place, trampling on the flowers. No respect, no respect at all. Bailey asks why. Art tells them they were all trying to get a picture of the blonde mystery woman. When they saw how pretty she really was, all heck broke loose. <laughs> that was a funeral. You can practically see Art shaking with anger. Bailey tries to lead Carlson over to Jennifer's desk chair, asking him to sit down. And then one reporter shouts, hey, look, she's with another old coot. <laughs> <laughs> this may be why he's really mad. Bailey and Andy try to suppress their smiles, but they don't do a very good job. Not exactly a kid anymore, but I'm not a cootster either. Andy asks how Jennifer is taking all this. Carlson tells him she was pretty shaken up. We flash bulbs going off in her face. People are asking questions like, hey, lady, you, you and this guy live together? <laughs> Bailey tells them she's going to go to Jennifer's house and stay with her for a while. Mr. Carlson tells her that's a good idea. Jennifer needs to forget about mystery floozies and wills. He wants Jennifer to take her vacation starting now. Bailey heads to the door leading to the bullpen. Front door is this way, young lady. Yes, but, but my purse is back here. As you wish. Carlson's wound up pretty <laughs> tight. He turns to go into his office and he glances over his shoulder at Andy. Travis, hold on. Barking out orders. Andy sits at Jennifer's desk. Me. Les comes in through the door that leads to the bullpen. I looked up executive tricks. It has nothing to do with high heels and leather. <laughs> Les looks at Andy, then turns around and goes back to the bullpen, leaving Andy scratching his head. And there's that great writing. It was a tense moment with Carlson being all angry, and here we end it with a we little get bit a little of comedy. Button on the end of the yes. scene to give us a laugh. We transition to a lawyer's office. There are dark green curtains on the windows that match the lush green carpet. A leather chair is positioned behind a big desk. There's a man, Mr. Kennington, sitting behind the desk with his hands folded under his chin, waiting. The camera pans along the leather couch. We get a close-up of three serious, grim-looking men and one constipated-looking <laughs> woman sitting next to each other. The woman's hair is dyed an obnoxious, brassy red, and she's got lipstick that matches. These must be the colonel's relation. The woman brings her scrawny arm up to her face to check the time. She speaks up. The meeting was called for 3 p.m. 
It's ten past now. <laughs> Mr. Kennington tells them he just wanted to make sure that everyone was here. Everybody is here. The woman's voice matches her look. <laughs> yes. <laughs> She's just a sour puss. There's a knock on the door. Jennifer enters. The gentlemen stand. Jennifer's dressed in purple with a wide-brimmed purple hat. She has a sable fur stole draped over her arm. Mr. Kennington, I'm Jennifer Marlowe. <laughs> How do you do? Jennifer tells Mr. Kennington she changed her mind and decided to come. Mr. Kennington says he hopes she would. Cloris clears her throat loudly. <coughs> Cloris. Mr. Kennington begins the introduction. Starting on my left, Cedric Buchanan, brother of the deceased. Cloris Buchanan, sister. Chester, another brother. And Skip Buchanan, nephew. And this is Miss Jennifer Marlowe. A friend of the deceased and executrix of the will. Jennifer smiles and nods her head at the group. So let's meet the gang, shall we? Mr. Kennington is being played by John Terry Bell. John Terry Bell has a dozen acting credits on his IMDb profile. He started out on an episode of Lou Grant as a stockbroker in 1978. He got along well at MTM, also appearing on The Bob Newhart Show. Bell's last appearance was in a 1986 movie called Just Between Friends. It starred Mary Tyler Moore. Unfortunately, John died very young. He passed away in 1995 at the age of 53 due to complications from AIDS. Cedric Buchanan is being played by Brian Wood. Brian's first acting gig was on My Three Sons in 1964. Over about 20 years, Brian would pick up a dozen acting credits. This appearance was his last TV role. Brian's last role of any kind would be in the Jamie Lee Curtis movie Love Letters in 1983, and he passed away in 1984. Cloris Buchanan is being played by Janet Clark. <coughs> Janet was born in 1912 in New Jersey. Her first acting role was uncredited in a 1946 movie called The Bride Wore Boots. She has 16 credits, about half our movies. Janet had a four-episode character on the All in the Family spinoff, Gloria. She also appeared three different times as three different characters on Growing Pains. In the late 80s, Janet worked right up until she died. Her last Growing Pains was in 1987. She died on June 12th of 1987. Chester Buchanan is being played by Ernie Brown. Ernie has 16 total credits on his IMDb profile, almost entirely on TV. His first appearance was in 1968 on the TV series Judd for the Defense. He played the character Waiter. Ernie may have been a friend of Albert Brooks. Two of his rare movie appearances were small parts in Defending Your Life and Lost in America, two Brooks movies. Ernie's last credited appearance was in 1996. He passed away in October of 97 at the age of 83. And the nephew, Skip Buchanan, is being played by Charles Alvin Bell. And as far as we can tell, he is not related to the guy playing the lawyer. Surprise, surprise, Skip is the most accomplished actor of this group. He has 35 acting credits representing about 50 episodes of TV, along with several movies. 
Charles got his start as an uncredited bartender in the 1959 movie Face of a Fugitive. He seemed to show up on a lot of westerns, both TV and in the movies, during the 1960s. His final IMDb credit was on the TV series Nurses in 1993. Charles passed away on Halloween of 1998 at the age of 90. There's a brief silence after the introductions, then lovely Cloris lets her feelings be known. (laughs) I resent her presence. They all voice their opinions. I don't like having an outsider here. She's not family. She's good looking, though. (laughs) (laughs) And that just fits Skip, doesn't it? Mr. Kennington tells them all, Jennifer has every legal right to be present. He then asks that they all be seated. Everyone sits. Mr. Kennington walks over to a cabinet and opens some doors to reveal a television set. Now, this may be out of the ordinary, but it's all perfectly legal. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd all care to watch the screen. This may be the very first video will to ever show up on a TV sitcom. They will become a regular sitcom trope going into the 80s and 90s. And I mentioned to you that of all of the episodes and the scenes that we've seen, I really love this scene where Colonel is talking to his family. Pat O'Brien just kills oh, it Oh, he here. knocks it out of the park. He and is I'm so funny. thinking we could have had a whole episode of him and his commentary on planning <laughs> the wedding. I'd have loved to have seen him as a semi-regular character showing up periodically to pick mm-hmm. Jennifer up from kind work. Kind like and, Mama. Yeah, he would have been so much fun. Well, he does this scene great. Mr. Kennington pushes a button and Colonel H. Buchanan appears on the screen. After dying in the cold (laughs) open, here's where Pat O'Brien gets a chance to really let fly. He does an amazing job in this scene, so we are going to let a lot of this just run. It is too funny. He says good afternoon to them all and then begins. Cedric, Clarice, Chester, Skip. <laughs> All the greedy relatives here. Oh, that's good. Oh, I, I like this little scene. By the way, I I've got me some executrix, huh? That's Jennifer. Say hello, Jennifer. Jennifer looks at the others. Hello. She's sweet, isn't she? You're damn right she is. <laughs> One woman I can count on. Pat's appearance on the lawyer's video monitor raised a tech question. There are two ways they could be doing this. First option, Pat's got a camera on him live somewhere else in the studio. The feed from the camera is being sent to the monitor in the law office set. In this option, Pat could be reacting to the family members in real time. Or, second option, Pat is on tape and the cast members are interacting with the taped message. This is one of those questions that could only be answered by a handful of people in the world. Thankfully, we have access to one of those people. Max Tash was the fourth season coordinating producer and second only to Hugh Wilson when it came to having his name in the WKRP credits. This was a Max question. According to Max, they're working with tape. He said Thursday was their camera blocking rehearsal. At the end of the day on Thursday, they had Pat sit down and do his video will for tape. Then on Friday, the final show was shot using 
Pat on tape. Thanks, Max, for that tech insight. <laughs> the colonel looks right into the camera. Hi, holding up, honey. Jennifer looks back at the television. Fine. Good. I know it's come through for me. Now, oh, now, wait. Wait. Before I start, I'd like to say something. Do you remember those times I used to fall asleep? Well, I wasn't asleep. I heard every damn thing that each one of you said about me. <laughs> Your relatives all shift uncomfortably. Uh-oh. <laughs> all right, now that's all taken care of. Let's begin. The colonel looks down at the papers lying on the desk in front of him. To my brother Cedric, I leave nothing. <laughs> 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 Cedric's eyes are wide and his mouth is hanging open. Because he's always been an all or nothing type of fella, and since he can't have it all, he gets nothing. <laughs> well, I paid his bills for the last 40 years, and that free ride on the Buchanan gravy train is over. Did you save anything, Cedric? No. No. <laughs> No, I didn't think so. But to my sister, Cloris. <laughs> Cloris smiles at the TV. She's thinking things might be better for her. I leave nothing. Cloris's face falls. Same reason. <laughs> to my brother, Chester. I'd like to leave less than nothing. <laughs> but that dumb lawyer of mine, he can't figure out how to do that. <laughs> to my nephew... Skip. <laughs> Who's always bragging about his van. To him, I leave some advice. The colonel looks into the camera again. Get a car, people, and see you around on the highway. You're blocking everybody's vision, you... <laughs> <laughs> now for Jennifer Morrow. To her, I leave exactly one dollar. She asked me not to leave her anything, but... This happens to be the first dollar I ever earned. And there is a sentimental attachment. The colonel looks right into the camera and takes off his glasses. I love you, darling. You're a good soldier. Jennifer looks at the image of the colonel and bringing her fingers up to her lips, she blows him a kiss. The colonel puts his glasses back on and looks back down at the papers. Now... All the rest of my estate, every damn cent of it, goes to the Harry Krishnas. That <laughs> is if they promise to stay out of the airport. Hugh Wilson loves the Hare Krishna jokes. You might remember we got a Hare Krishna joke right up top in pilot part two. This isn't fun. Let's go chase the Hare Krishnas out of the airport again. <laughs> then Johnny and Hoyt Axton had a run-in with Krishnas in I Do, I Do for Now. TJ, welcome to our happy home. Uh -huh. I got these from some bald-headed guys down in there. <laughs> the colonel continues. I'm only kidding, actually. The balance of my estate is to be spent on a parade. A parade. I want a parade honoring the veterans of my old unit, the Fighting 42nd. Round them up, Jennifer. Round them up and bring them here. And give them a parade. And when it's over, well, divide the rest of the money. 
Give her the men of the 42nd, and if they're deceased, give her their family. The colonel looks into the camera again to address Jennifer. He takes off his glasses. Pat is good with those hand props. Now, look, dear, don't, don't you try and do all this yourself. No, no, it's too difficult. You, you hire a staff to do that. I think my brother Cedric's looking for a job. <laughs> well, that's it, folks. Nice knowing you. Now I suggest you go to your corners and come out fighting. The colonel mentioned the Fighting 42nd. The 42nd Infantry Division was very unique in U.S. military history. It was active in both World War I and World War II. The 42nd was originally composed of National Guard troops from all over the United States, mobilized to fight in World War I. Since all states were represented, the 42nd adopted a rainbow as their division insignia. When the 42nd was reactivated for service in World War II, the rainbow was retained. The troops serving in the 42nd during World War II were not National Guard, but to observe the tradition of the 42nd, whenever they would march, in addition to the division insignia, they would also display all 48 U.S. state flags. Mr. Kennington turns the TV off and an indignant Chester is on his feet. Mr. Kennington, this is not a will. What we have here is the ramblings of a, of a senile old man who has fallen under the spell. Of Chester looks over at Jennifer without finishing his sentence. Looking back at the lawyer, he continues. I don't think we'll have any trouble convincing a judge that my brother was incompetent. I'm not so sure a judge would find that going out with Miss Marlowe here was all that incompetent. <laughs> Just might prove his mind was clear as a bell. <laughs> but a parade, I mean, really. It's insane. It's, it's frivolous. It's going to start around 2, probably last until around 7. I'm going to pick a nice summer's day when all the kids are out of school. Jennifer smiles after she says this. I can see we're going to have a fight on our hands. Cloris stands up and Cedric stands with her. Just as big as you'd like to make it. Cedric tells Cloris to come on. There's no point in staying. None whatsoever. Cedric opens the door and they walk out. Skip turns before leaving the room. I always thought he was asleep. <laughs> Once the room is empty, Jennifer shakes hands with the lawyer and thanks him. I guess I have a lot of work to do. Ah, Skip is such a loser, heading back out to his van. <laughs> Mr. Kennington asks Jennifer if she has a tape machine like this one at her home. I have several. And this is not a VHS. He pulls a tape out of his briefcase and hands it to Jennifer. And it is a large format broadcast tape. But I think they were counting on the fact that nobody knew what a VHS tape looked like at that time. Because it just, was so new. I think they were just counting on the fact that nobody was really mm -hmm. that familiar with them. I guess the colonel wanted you to watch it when you're alone. Jennifer thanks him and says goodbye, hugging the tape to her. Jennifer walks out of the lawyer's office. The lawyer shuts his door with a satisfied grin on his face and heads back to his desk as we fade to black. That's going to do it for Jennifer and the Will. Man, Pat O'Brien made that one a lot of fun. Yes, he, he made that, that last scene. Oh, my gosh. Really took it home. <laughs>
<laughs> so what is up for next week, Donna? Next week, we will be discussing love, exciting, and new. Andy wants a new transmitter for the station, and he visits Mrs. Carlson to ask for it. Andy ends up taking her out to discuss business, but she seems to want more than that. Take note, fellow babies, this is not the next episode on the Shout Factory Discs. This is one of the first misidentified episodes of the fourth season. The Consultant is the next episode on the Shout Factory Discs. The Consultant doesn't air until after Love, exciting, and new. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes. Find us on social media. You can follow our Facebook page at WKRP cast. For more WKRP fun, become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash WKRP cast for behind the scenes fun, full interviews, and more. Got a question? Comment or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, wkrpcast at gmail.com. And remember, please rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye now. May the good news be yours. The WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!